Good morning. It's good to be with you again. As we continue our study through the whole Bible together this year, I want to remind you that there are several numbers that we've used to help understand the framework of the entire story of the Bible. So these numbers situate the entire story of the Scripture, the number three, four, and five. And this morning, I just want to remind you of five, the five threads, because actually, as we look through the book of Romans together, you will see all five threads in the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning in the, in the book of Romans. So remember the five threads. If you want to understand the story of Scripture, keep in mind these five threads because you see them throughout Scripture. Number one, God has always had a people. He is always building His church. Number two, evil is real but never gets the last word. Three, grace. God pursues, initiates, and saves. Four, He did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. Five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything, everything, everything. So I'm going to read to you a sample from Romans chapter 16. I left out the middle section that has about 26 names in it. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, keep it open because I'm going to refer to some of those names even though I'm not going to read them all. But this is the most forgotten chapter in perhaps the most famous book in the Scripture. So we're going to look at this chapter, Romans 16, together. Listen to this. This is God's Word. It is life. This is from God for His people, for us. Listen to this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Cancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word today, help us to dive into this passage and realize your good news for us, that you are building your church, that evil is real but doesn't get the last word, that you are constantly pursuing and saving. 
that Jesus, you have accomplished something that has changed the course of history, that everything is moving toward you. Everything in our lives is bringing us to understand you and bringing us to a realization that you are everything. Holy Spirit, act on us, help us, work in us. Again, for your glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. This morning, we're going to start with the obvious about the book of Romans, and the obvious truth about Romans is this. It is often the book that is used to change and challenge everything that we have been taught about Christianity. If you read through the book of Romans, there are so many people who have read this book and realized, wow, this is saying something that I've never heard before or thought about. This is true in the life of my own father. Many of you know my dad is in the ministry. He just recently retired a few years ago, but he's pastored churches for a number of years. And I remember talking to my dad one time about certain changes that happened in his life. And he said to me that after he got out of seminary, he continued to read the Bible and he continued to read the book of Romans. And he came to a realization that what he was reading in the book of Romans was inconsistent with everything that he had been taught his whole life about what Christianity was. And it took him years to work through that. This book, the book of Romans, is often what God uses to change us from being man-centered to God-centered. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never read the book of Romans. I don't know what you're talking about. I've ignored the book of Romans or I've always grown up in church and they never talked about Romans. No worries, no worries. We have been looking through all of the scripture and the story of scripture, the consistent story of scripture this entire year. So you are, whether you realize it or not, getting the consistent story of scripture as we have walked through the whole Bible together. So the point of the passage that I need you to understand is this. This is what we are going to look at together. The gospel works. The gospel works. Now here's just a little bit of background in important background about the book of Romans. Remember, the apostle Paul wrote this, the guy that had the incredible life change that we looked at together. Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it around the year 58. He wrote it to a church in Rome that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. He wrote it to a church that was going through lots of struggle and lots of challenges because it was made up of Jews and Gentiles. If you want to, you can read Acts chapter 18, and it tells you that the emperor Claudius actually banned all Jews from Rome for about five years. So all the Jews had to leave Rome. After five years, they returned, and those that were part of the church in Rome reunited with their non-Jewish, their Gentile brothers and sisters, and there was great tension. There was tension before, there was even more tension after. So Paul writes the book of Romans in order to address the tension that is there in the church. And what he does is he shows us that the gospel is appropriate for every situation. So again, our main idea is the gospel works. Let me show you what I mean in Acts chapter 16, in, in Romans chapter 16. The first way we see the gospel working is this. It brings people together. 
It brings people together. If you were to read this entire chapter, what you would find is that there are people who are brought together that are from very diverse backgrounds, all kinds of people. There are Jews in the list. There are Gentiles in the list of names. There are those of high status from the emperor's house and those who, are, who live and work with the emperor in other houses. There are those of the lowest, lowest spot, lowest condition in the first century culture those that have wealth and those that have none. Even, even Paul tells us that there is a great importance put on women. If you notice, there are about 26 names in this chapter, and at least eight of those names are women, and they hold a prominent place You'll notice that he begins by talking about Phoebe and encouraging everyone to receive her in the Lord. Phoebe was the one that more than likely gave this letter to the Roman church. Paul wrote it, handed it to Phoebe, and as a servant of the church, someone who was acting in service, delivered this magnificent letter to the church in Rome. We see everywhere that the gospel continues to bring people together that otherwise would not probably have any interaction with one another. The gospel works. It brings people together. In thinking about that, there's something else that we find in these verses. We find that God's people are active. It's not just that the gospel brings people together that normally wouldn't be together. It's that the people of God are active. If you look at verse 4, you'll find out that there was a particular person that put her life on the line in order to apparently save the Apostle Paul's life. And even though we don't know the exact uh, life experience or the exact thing, the exact event that happened, apparently all of the audience did. They all knew what this woman had done to help save Paul's life, even sticking out her own neck so that Paul's life might be preserved. Again, we also think about Phoebe and what she did for the church in delivering the letter. But look at what else the text tells you in the first couple of verses. That she was one that supported the church. She gave of her resources to the church so ministry could continue. She was even a personal patron of the Apostle Paul. She supported him on his church planting endeavors and on his travels. Wherever the Lord would lead the Apostle Paul, she was a supporter of that. People were active. Even those that were with Paul where he was away from Rome when he sent this letter, there were those with him who send their own greetings to the church, who were working for the good of the church. Remember, the church is not just an individual expression. The church is connected. You see, that's the great assumption of these verses, is that the church is connected. There's church in Greece. There is church in Rome, in Jerusalem, in the surrounding areas, in Ephesus, all over the place. The church is connected. There was a growth of what Jesus 
began in the first century from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The church as an institution was connected together. Therefore, the people that made up those local expressions of the followers of Christ, the church, they were connected to others and other places. The great assumption here is that the gospel brings people together that wouldn't normally be together to work together to actively, actively work together because the assumption is that they are connected because of what Christ has done and they are accountable to one another. If you notice verse 16, you even find all the churches. There is an inescapable connectionalism of accountability and work within the church in the first century. And oh, by the way, there are also some pretty fun things in this list of names as well. Without going through all of the names and without going through every little detail that we know, some things we don't know about those that were listed, there are also a lot of fun things going on here that gives us a little flavor about the life of this church. You notice around verse 22, 23, there's this guy named Erastus who is demarcated here in our English translation as the city treasurer. Well, actually, the word conveys the idea of he was the director of public works. He was the head maintenance guy for the city that he lived in. You read of a guy named Rufus, which just means red. We read around verse 15, verse 12, about these two seemingly twin uh, girls named Tryphena and Tryphosa. When actuality, those names mean delicate and dainty. If you look at verse 15, you read about this other guy, um, Philologue, which actually means chatterbox. It's as if Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, all of you whether you are of high standing or low, whether you have enormous amount of resources to give, or whether you are the one that transported the letter to this beautiful church, this amazing church, whether there is great tension in the church or not, God has brought all these people together. Even you, Chatterbox, he is identifying with them he knows this body of believers and is known by them. Just like all churches have their own makeup and own personalities. Paul is reminding us of that. The gospel works. It brings people together. So here are a couple of questions to think about at this point. Where are you actively participating in the life of the church? Where are you helping God's people? Now, I ask that question because we're living during this time that's very strange. It's weird. God is indeed simplifying us. He's simplifying the church. And even though we are living during a time of this pandemic, we still can serve one another. We still can actively participate in helping one another. Are you praying for one another? Are you seeking other people out? Maybe another question to think of is this. Are you willing to let others help you? Are there things that you need in your life? 
Are there things that you need others to pray for you? Do you need someone to pray with you? This is challenging us to remember that the gospel works and it enables us to be actively participating in the life of the church to help others and to recognize that we need help too. Well, here's the second point this morning. The gospel works. It brings people together. When the gospel works, it is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. And even though that may sound funny, let me show you. Look down around verse 20. The gospel is revolutionary. It crushes Satan. Look at what God says. He tells us that in a short period of time, he will crush Satan under our feet. Remember, remember who the true real enemy is. It's Satan himself. Don't forget that. Remember, he is real. The Bible gives us the imagery that he is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Remember, our great enemy Satan wants us dead. He wants us to be distracted. He wants us to be a people that love and promote division. He wants us to be deceived about what is true and what is not true. This is why in verse 17 and following, God would tell us to the Apostle Paul to be careful about those who are not following the doctrine, the gospel that they had heard from Paul and the apostles. Remember that God is telling us that our real enemy wants us to be deceived. And our enemy knows that we are easily deceived. And it's easy to follow false teaching. And there are those who will say things with flattering words to deceive that are just interested in serving themselves, not the church, not promoting the gospel and centering our lives together on the gospel, but all kinds of other stuff. Our great enemy wants us deceived and divided. He wants us dead. He does not want the church to have the resources that it needs. He wants the church itself to be distracted. And you see, when Jesus died and rose from the dead, those great historical events, it meant that he crushed the head of Satan. One of the children's books that we love to use actually gives this title to Jesus as the snake crusher. Because of what Jesus has done, he actually has accomplished something. He is victorious over death. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And even though the serpent's tail is still wagging, and even though he is still active, he is in principle defeated. And beloved, every time that we follow the gospel, we are participating in that victory of Jesus. 
That every single time we measure what anyone says in accordance with the Scripture and follow God, we are participating in the victory that we have in Jesus. Every time we obey God, every time in faith we receive the identity that we receive from God and live out that identity through the power of the Holy Spirit, we participate in that victory that Christ has accomplished. Every time we love one another, we are participating in that victory of Christ. Every single time we choose to have God's word define everything for us, we are participating in the victory that Christ has won. The gospel works and it is revolutionary. Let me show you how revolutionary. In order to do that, I need to set the stage for you by us thinking about how our modern world came to be. The world that we live in right now, the culture that we live in, the society that we live in, we need to get a sense of what our modern society is like. So bear with me. Try to think about as wide angle a lens as you can to understand how we got to this point in the culture that we're living in. There are many people who would say these things. If you want resources for this, come and ask me. I'm not giving you entirely original information here. The modern world, the world that we're living in now, is made up of three basic shifts. These shifts happened, some of them a long time ago. One of the shifts is this. There was a dramatic shift in the financial world. There was a shift from money, from, excuse me, from land to money. Matter of fact, there's some that would date one of the first banks even in the late 1300s, the Mendocini family in Italy. They were the ones that came up with the two-column way of keeping up with money. There was a shift in the financial world from land to money. There was another shift. It had to deal with work. There was a shift from manual labor and animals, using animals and agrarian things to machines. Think about the industrial revolution. There was a shift in knowledge. Think about the guy Claude Shannon in 1948 that wrote the theory of information in which he laid the groundwork that enabled us to develop our mobile phones and even the internet itself. There was a shift from wisdom to simple information and data. And what that has meant for us in the modern world is untold wealth and prosperity. What it has meant is that winning looks like us getting more and more power. Meaning, here's what winning looks like. For the top 1%, it means that there is such position and power that the top 1% is almost disconnected from everyone else 
And everyone else needs that 1%. It means for the rest of us, the 99%, we're still thinking about how we can be connected to the right people in order to get exactly what we want. In other words, winning looks an awful lot like gaining more knowledge and being disconnected from other people. It means the goal of living in the world that we live in is to be completely free, autonomous. The goal is to be independent of everything and to be totally free. Now you see what has happened is this. All of those shifts and all the goals that we have for living have depersonalized everyone and everything. And there's been this tremendous shift from personhood to power, production, and using those things for self. So that personhood is virtually gone. And even though there's untold wealth, people are lonelier than ever. Think about most of the time when you go to the store. Think about most of the time when you need help with figuring out your technology, whatever that is. Internet, TV, whatever. Think about how hard it is to talk to someone. Think about hard, how hard it is for you to be treated as a human being. Think about how many times you can just buy something without having to interact with anyone else. You see, there was another time in history in which very similar things had occurred. That was under the Roman Empire, the first century. Remember what happened in the Roman Empire is that they were one of the first to have minted coins. They were also the type of empire that leveraged force in order to build roads and buildings and cities. And to live in the Roman Empire in the first century also meant that you were largely unknown. Sure, if you were a general, if you were a soldier, if you were a philosopher, if you were someone that had tremendous wealth, your name was known. But other than that, women were treated as property. 20 to 30% of the Roman Empire was slaves. When you even read the New Testament, you remember that book that the Apostle Paul wrote, the book called Philemon? You remember that? Remember the character in that story that was living with Philemon, Onesimus? Remember that name was just, just meant useful. That was his name. Useful. Because apparently that's what people thought of him. He didn't really have a name. He was given a label. A label attached to productivity and how he could be used by others. You see, the point of thinking about all this is not that we want to go back to a time when things revolving around finances were different. It's not to go back to a time in which 
We don't have machines, or it's not to go back to a time in which wisdom was more important, as perhaps helpful as some of those things may be. My point is to say that we live in a modern world in which individualism and power and productivity and total freedom is the goal. And my point is to say that the gospel works. Look at verse 22. Look at what the Apostle Paul says. There was a guy that would write down what the Apostle Paul said. His name was Tertius. And Paul had been verbalizing the content of 15 chapters worth of material one of the greatest letters that we've ever received, one of the greatest, deepest, most comprehensive books on the gospel that we have in the Bible. And as Paul is wrapping up, he looks at Tertius and he says, Tertius, Tertius, make sure you you greet the people. By the way, do you know what Tertius means? Third. If you look at verse 24, do you know what quartus means? Fourth. More than likely, these were slaves who had no identity other than just to be named first, second, third, fourth. And Tertius, writing down what the Apostle Paul had been saying, begins to pen his own words and say, I wrote this letter. I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying? He is showing us that the gospel works. It is revolutionary in a culture of depersonalization, in a culture of individualism, in a culture in which productivity and power are what it means to win and they are the goal for each of us to achieve, to know that we actually count for something, the gospel comes in and it breaks down all of those barriers and puts people together that wouldn't normally be together and gives an identity in a world in which is completely wrecked because of individualized autonomy. Tertius says, I greet you in the Lord. He has become a follower of Christ. And now because of the riches that he has in Christ, because of the identity that he has in Christ, he is connected with Every single person, not based on what the culture says, not defined how the culture says to define us, but based upon what Jesus Christ has done and who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ is for him and for them. It should be no surprise that the Apostle Paul ends this entire book in verses 25 through 27 with a doxology, meaning 
that he can't help but end this entire massive great book but by giving glory to God. Listen to what it says. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Apostle Paul is so overwhelmed with the reality that the gospel works that he is ascribing all glory to God. He is giving all glory to God because it is the gospel that strengthens him, as it says, and us. It is the preaching of Jesus. It is the preaching of the gospel that enables us to be strong because it enables us to know that we are weak in ourselves and strong in Jesus. And that leads to the obedience of faith. You see, obedience doesn't earn our favor with God. Obedience flows out of faith. Faith is what receives what Jesus has done that changes everything. And because we have the love of God, and because we have forgiveness from God, and because we have an identity from God, and because God continues to be gracious to us, we participate in what he is doing in living out his mission, ascribing glory to God. And friends, that's what should make us think. Stop and think. What is it that you give glory to? I realize that you can hear that question and think, why? Tell me how to give glory. Because we always want to know some type of method. Teach me how to give glory so I can, you know, take this method and then work it and then use it and then get a particular result. But you understand giving glory to something is much deeper than being taught a list of how to do something. Giving glory to God is absolutely counterintuitive, just like the gospel. You see, even though we always want the method, what Paul is teaching us is the gospel is counterintuitive, that we need the gospel to get into us. You see, we always give glory to what our heart is attached to. We always give glory and praise what our heart loves. Whatever has the affection of our heart is what we will praise. It's what we will give glory to. Think about what you give glory to. Think about what you praise. There have been a lot of babies that have been born in our church. Those of you that have newborns, don't you praise and give glory to your children? 
It's a glorious thing. It's wor- they are worthy of praise and affection. It overflows from your heart because your heart is attached to these beautiful gifts, these children. You give glory when things happen, perhaps whenever you accomplish things. Isn't it easy for us to take glory for ourselves, for things that we accomplish? Our hearts are often attached to self. Therefore, we most want to give praise to self. Maybe you can realize that you give glory and praise oftentimes to things that are unexpected that happen, that are unexpectedly good. That happens to me in my life. There are times that I watch sporting events and there's an incredible shot or a buzzer beater or something incredible that happens and it immediately causes me to praise and glory in what I just saw. Giving glory to God is counterintuitive. In other words, if we are going to give glory to God, we must have hearts that are attracted to Christ. And we must have hearts that want to be changed by Christ. It means that we need to stop and think, what really is it that I give glory to? Some of those things are good, but do we ever give glory to God Maybe this week it would be good for you to think about some of these questions. I will. Think about some of these. Are there people in your life that you should encourage and praise because you say that you love them? If there are people in your life that you love, would you praise them and encourage them? As you think about the totality of what's going on here in Romans 16 and the culture that we live in that prizes so much individualism and power and production, would you think about maybe areas of your life in which you are simply living just for self and because of the work of Jesus Would you fight against the selfish things and connect yourself to people? And in connecting yourself with people, connect yourself with folks around the gospel? Maybe think about whether or not you live life on your own terms. And maybe whether or not Jesus is calling you to get outside of that and to get into living life with him and his church and his people, actively pursuing others, thinking about the gospel and how it's changed your life and changing you. Where is it? that Jesus is becoming more beautiful and believable? Where is the gospel working in you to bring you together with others? Where is the gospel working 
and revolutionizing how you think and how you operate. May all of us be so captivated by the grace of the gospel that Jesus would become our purpose and motive and mission. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that your word is true, that you indeed are doing a work in this church in Rome and therefore in us. We pray that our hearts would be drawn to you in what you have done. And we pray that you would help us to give glory to God. And because of that, give appropriate praise and glory to others. And because of that, build your church and be active in pursuing others to be active in living out the gospel. We pray this through the blood of Jesus. Amen. Beloved, as you go out this week and fulfill your calling at home, at work, in your neighborhood, whether you are spending time with your family or personal time with the Lord, no matter what it is, know that God's blessing is upon you and his gospel does work. It works in you. It works in me. God is using everything in our lives to convince us of his truth. So receive his blessing and try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead because of the blood of Christ he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day all glory will go to him forever and ever because of Christ. Amen. Go in his peace.